Hello and welcome to the Ghibli Rewatch series of the Overly Animated Podcast, where we'll be going through every Studio Ghibli movie chronologically from the beginning. I'm Dylan Heisen, and today I'm joined by Allie Martin. Hello. And April Collins. Hi there. Join us in rewatching or watching for the first time all the Studio Ghibli movies now that they're now that they're available for streaming for the first time on HBO Max in the United States and Netflix in most of the rest of the world. Um, asterisk, as of this recording, the movie we're talking about today, Wind Rises, does not have subtitles on the Japanese version on HBO Max, which is very annoying. Hopefully that is fixed by the time you're watching it. But if uh, if you're experiencing that, no, it's not you, it's just you. So, uh, uh, yeah. So uh, we'll say on Netflix, it's apparently fine. Okay, that means they used to be there. So hopefully it'll be fixed. I hope so. We've also had spacing problems in two other movies. So let's get it together. (laughs) Um, HBO, get on it. Yeah. New podcast every Wednesday as we go through the whole Ghibli catalog chronologically at OverlyAnimated.com. I'm a Ghibli expert joined by co-hosts with a variety of Ghibli experience. As I mentioned today is The Wind Rises, the final Hayao Miyazaki movie we'll be talking about on this series. Uh, Very excited to get into Wind Rises. Full spoilers for Every movie we discuss here, except uh, only minor spoilers for the rest of the Ghibli catalog besides Wind Rises, we'll be discussing both the subbed and dubbed versions, uh, primarily the subs, but watch whichever you prefer. Um, have not seen, I don't think I've seen the dub for this movie, so I'll uh, see if we have comments on the dub. Um, I watched the dub. Okay, yay. And because, I've seen both. Because the subtitles for the Japanese were not working, <laughs> yes, I, and I was like, I, I guess I have you watched no the choice. dub. Yeah. Okay, Listen, we'll this is one of the few times where I'll say the dub is good. It's a good Interesting. one. Interesting, that's good. Talk about good jo- cast, Joseph good interpretations. Yeah. Okay. So, like a really big name, surprisingly. I mean, well, not surprisingly, but it yeah, was kind of yeah, unexpected. The, the Ghibli yeah. uh, or the Miyazaki ones, especially, have had some pretty big names um, for the dubs. Um, that's good to hear. Uh, so, we'll discuss that uh, maybe. Uh, but yes, let's get into The Wind Rises. This is 2013. Um, Hayao Miyazaki's final feature film until it wasn't, and he decided to once again come out of retirement. <laughs> and uh, but this time they actually shut Studio Ghibli down, so they brought Studio Ghibli back. Um, and now he's in production for How Do You Live, his final. Uh, Maybe uh, <laughs> I assume due out in a few years. I, it seems like it'll be his final movie. Um, so uh, the yeah, the last one here, uh, Wind Rises, is about real life uh, historical figure Jiro Horikoshi, who designed the Zero Fighter plane in Japan. Um, the movie is about like uh, the movie is adapted from Miyazaki's manga of the same name. He wrote that before. Was encouraged to make it into a movie. Um, basically this, if you're unaware, this movie is like half, uh, Jiro's real life based on history and half a 1937 novel, The Wind Has Risen by Tatsuo Hori, which is about a man taking care of his wife who's in a sanatorium. Um, so basically all the plain stuff is real. All the sick wife stuff is from the book and is kind of stapled onto Jiro's life. Jiro, yeah, Jiro's life who did not have a uh, wife with tuberculosis. Um, movie was financially successful, critically well received, you know, as per usual with Miyazaki's movies. So, a lot to talk about, probably some heavy topics we're going to get into as this is, um, you know, Miyazaki's most adult film. Um, so, we have quite a few different themes to talk about. Allie, what's your history with Wind Rises? What do you think of this movie? I want to say I watched it when it came out, but I honestly don't remember. I've seen it a couple of times since then. Um, I, I'm pretty sure I established this on the Poppy Hill pod that I am all about like historical 
romance dramas, especially if they're very tragic. I just I, like, yeah, I guess this things. is two in a row. For that. Yeah, two in a row. Yeah. History romances. Yeah. I mean, I'm a fan of them. I, I get, I mean, I, it's hard to say if they're enjoyable or not. I think it was very well done, but it's, I'll say this, like all in all, the movie as like beautifully well done as it is makes me uncomfortable for a lot of reasons, like not agreeing with Jiro's choices or lifestyle. I mean, we're going to get into like all the war stuff, but I do enjoy this sort of thing to a degree, especially when it like makes me feel like I have to question my ideas to the point of like where I wind up reading and doing research, ruminating things that I either thought I was super familiar with and turned out to be wrong about or that I knew like nothing about. So learning about like World War One Japan. Obviously, I knew some stuff, but like not to the extent about the fighter planes and about the kamikaze stuff. But like, I think it was done in a way that like it makes you just uncomfortable enough, not in a bad way. And we're going to get into that because you have a lot of stuff, a lot of notes on it. But I did enjoy it a lot. I think it's one of his really good movies that people don't really talk enough about, especially because of like, I guess it's controversial stuff. But yeah, it's a good movie. Nice. Yeah, I mean, it is, you know, it is his most recent movie hasn't had time to uh, percolate as a in terms of like being a classic or anything. That's but, true. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll, we, we'll, we'll see where consensus lands on Wind Rises. I do think there's a little bit of a divisive one, um, which we can get into. Um, April, what about you? What's your history with this movie? And what did you think of it? Um, so I have like no history with this movie. Um, I, th- I think I, I remember like hearing about it. And I was like, okay, that's cool. And then that was like the end of it. Um, but I, I guess I like, I like knowing that it was slightly based off of real life. So that's kind of cool. And I do like, I, like, I'm always really like interested in like Japan's history. And so I guess like knowing about like, like I guess sort of like what led up to um, World War Two is kind of interesting as well. Um, I thought it was very well done, but for me, this movie just moved so slow, and mm-hmm. like I, I, I hated that it moved slow. But I under, like I understand and I get it moving slow, given like the like what's taking place within the like the context of the movie and everything like that. But it was like very well done. My like my one of my favorite things was the earthquake scene. I just love how that was animated, mm-hmm. um, even though it was very tragic, <laughs> but. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah I, I i mean i enjoyed it but it's not one of my most favorite movies so and i wasn't like super duper like blown away there was like some like um like cg animation that was sort of jarring but other than that like it looked good the music was nice it was a very like miyazaki-esque so <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, it's the, this is the Plains movie, so on its own, it's the most probably, it's a very Miyazaki-esque movie. Um, so probably in some ways very reminiscent of his work, other ways pretty different. Um, yeah, I, I agree, the earthquake, earthquake scene's really good, one of the best in the movie. Um, yeah. I, we can we can talk about it, that's, yeah, it's depicting real life. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be a big discussion point, so we can we can uh mention it's now mention it now it's it's depicting uh real life uh earthquake 1923 i think yeah the great kanto earthquake mm-hmm. um so that's the retelling of that history uh yeah i've you know saw saw wind rises um i've always liked it but maybe was never in love with it was interested to revisit it now i think this is um 
a gorgeous movie. Um, I, I so basically, I have a similar opinion now. I, I do. I, I think this movie's um, good, and I more like uh, like respect it necessarily than love it, which I think is some people's um, thoughts on yeah. this. Yeah, uh, I think I do think the romance is very affecting. I'm very interested in the fact that Miyazaki finally depicts like a full romance in his movies, which is like shocking given. How pr- prior to his last three movies, there's like nobody kisses ever, and then suddenly <laughs> he does he's, he's a lot of romance going on. Um, I think the big thing I find this movie less magical than any previous Miyazaki movie. Um, every single one of his movies, and I connect to it less personally. So that's just a personal thing. Um, I will say I find the movie uh, morally questionable. We'll get into it and um, extend it will extensively get into it probably. And uh, I think that's frustrating considering Miyazaki movies usually are like magical and progressive and that's wonderful. This movie is progressive in some ways, but is also like Miyazaki's least progressive movie in other ways. Um, the uh, and more importantly, I guess though, it's just like off putting. I think the con- the surrounding context of the movie like there's a lot of like this the movie is very sanitized but if you look if you think about what's happening beyond it i think it a lot of stuff becomes pretty off-putting um so i think it's a little tough to watch in in that regard so it's it's not like my favorite miyazaki movie to watch and i would say it's actually probably my least favorite miyazaki movie to watch and well i'm not sure where i'm landing on in terms of like best or anything with with like maybe it could it's probably not one of my favorites in in terms of ranking or anything but um but i do really appreciate it and i think it's really interesting that we got this movie because it's like a pure adult miyazaki movie and like i didn't really ever think we'd get many things about this movie from miyazaki didn't think we'd get a full adult movie didn't think we'd get a full romance movie um like uh no fantasy movie so i i'm even though it's not the one I connect with the most, I I think there's a lot to like admire and dig into here. So I think it's going to be an interesting discussion, although a tough one in terms of some subjects um, for us to have. It's definitely easier to appreciate than it is to enjoy. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, you don't have to like enjoy your favorite, like a great yeah. movie, you know, you right. can like uh, some movies are gritty on purpose and uh it's about, you know, you're supposed to feel rough things. Um, that's This is probably Miyazaki's movie that's closest to that, although I don't really know that that's what he's going for here. Uh, I'd say in a way it is, but you have quotes about that that we can get into later. Yeah. yeah. I mean, certainly there's a lot of sad stuff happening. Um, so yeah. It's about going on this experience of Jiro's life, which is not always in a very fun direction. Um, in fact, probably tragic. Uh, across the board, I would say it ends up being <laughs> <laughs> well, in, yeah, more subtly in terms of the plain stuff, but uh, yeah. Uh, so I mean, before you know, there's probably the main topic is going to be like all the stuff about war because I think it's most interesting to get into. But we could start off by talking about like what I was mentioning the different genres of the film because this is a historical film, a first for Miyazaki. It's like he's had movies set in the past, I guess, before, but. And, you know, he wrote he wrote the Poppy Hill last movie, which is explicitly set in, a, in Japan, older Japan. Um, but it's like a war movie. It's a romance drama, an adult film. And probably most notably, it's not a fantasy movie, uh, which is shocking. I mean, how many non-fantasy movies does Miyazaki have? Like, kind of Kiki? <laughs> like, maybe? It's a, it's a little, <laughs> well, she's it, a witch. That she's counts. She's a witch. Yeah, and then Porco, witch, Porco, Ro- Porco Rosso is definitely the closest to this movie, but... 
Um, but he's a pig. Yeah, but he's a pig, and he's under some spell or curse or something. Yeah. <laughs> so I, th- I think Porco. The biggest difference, like honestly, him being a pig isn't even the biggest difference between Porco and this for me. <laughs> it is the fact that Porco's like uh, is is like a fun romp, and yeah. this movie yeah. is like a serious sad drama. So I feel like it's very tonally different. Um, Ali, how do you how do you think Miyazaki handles kind of one of our first experiences with him, like not making a fantasy movie? Um, well, it's tough to go into it without bringing up that like controversy thing that we have in our in our outline. But I think um, he it the I think he succeeded in making it provocative to in terms of stirring up discussion that like people are uncomfortable with having or aren't ready for or don't want to have it. But I'm honestly not sure how well that went in Japan when it came out because of all the war stuff. Well, not because of that time, but just because in general, Japan and its history with war is very tricky. Um, in terms of his not doing a fantasy movie, I think it's, I mean, like April said, it does drag, but I also understand why it drags. Cause like, there's too much, there's too many things happening at once that have to be, you know, going back and forth and back and forth. I think it is a little tiring, but I wouldn't say it was done poorly. I just think it's, I, I don't know if you like said that it's hard to watch, but it's like a little, it's like, okay, we kind of, it's being hammered a little too hard, but in a sense, it makes sense why he's doing it that way. Do you think it's, so in terms of if you're someone that finds this maybe the least watchable or the least fun, which, you know, I think clearly this is probably his least fun movie on purpose. Um, <laughs> is is it the lack of fantasy that is the cause of that? Or is it that he's just going for that sort of tone? I think it's both. But if you're going into Miyazaki, you're automatically expecting it to be super like out of this world and not at all about the real life. So I think that it not being a fantasy is more of a factor than it being a war movie. But I I think it's definitely both. It's, it has it, to be both. Yeah. It's it's a shocking choice for Miyazaki to make a completely non-fantasy movie here uh, for his last film because he's explicitly known for his fantastical sequences and his fantasy. But the thing is, he films. does have a lot of like super incredible sequences, especially with the dream sequences that kind of, it doesn't make up for it not being a fantasy, but it does like have, it keeps that element of his movies in this one. And I mean, also with just the sequences where he's like um, explaining how the planes are built, the animation and period is just like very evocative of provocative. I don't know the word um, like his fantastical element. I'm trying to think of proper wording, but you know about yeah, that. I think like evocative <laughs> is uh, the, what you would feel and for his fantasy sequences normally. Um, yeah. 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 And I, and this, this uh, would bring me to some, some Napier quotes, but first like April, do you, do you find Miyazaki retains kind of this sort of fantastical quality that he's known for in this non-fantasy movie? I mean, uh, like Ali was saying, the closest we get to is sort of those dream sequences. But even those seem very, like, grounded in reality almost. Yeah. Like, they're not too, like, out there like you would sort of, hope, like, think, I guess, or expect them to be. Um, which, you know, kind of, like, again, like, it's it's like the, the combination of this being, like, a historical, like, war movie like in that there's almost like no room for fantasy in it that's Mm -hmm. it's it's such a like unique combination for him because it's not unlike Miyazaki to take on like controversial or like heavy topics but like for him to like do so and then just so like totally remove the element that he's known for when it comes to like animation is just kind of like shocking almost um and i wouldn't say i mean it, it kind of makes it hard 
to watch, but like, I don't know. It's, it's hard to describe that feeling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I want, yeah, let me bring in some, some quotes from Susan Napier in her book, Miyazaki world, um, about kind of how, there are still potentially fantasy stuff in this non-fantasy movie. First about kind of the beauty of the movie. She says, The Wind Rises is a beautiful movie, conveying Miyazaki World in its distillation of the director's own romantic yearnings, ideological anxieties, and core values more than it offers historical insight. Although there is no explicit fantasy, the film contains dream sequences and other evocative images that suggest an alternate an alternative to the rising militarism, extremes of poverty and wealth, and growing international tensions of 1930s Japan. The Wind Rises revels in its luscious portrayals of Miyazaki's cherished Euro world, the Italian countryside over which a handcrafted airplane swoops and swerves, a memorable view of a Gargantuan German aircraft factory with the winter lighting shining in its high windows. But most stunning are the carefully rendered reimaginings of pre-war Japan, um, which brings brings up the setting of the movie and the time period, which we are in. You know, we go from somewhere a little bit before 1920 in Japan to 1937 is kind of where we end up prior to this uh, epilogue, which probably takes place a little bit later. Um, so mostly in like 20s and 30s Japan, interesting earlier time period than we're we're used to. Although I guess um, probably adjacent to Porco Rosso or at least a similar time period. Um, we, we see we're in Germany in 1929. Um, and then we're like only in Italy, I guess, in fantasy sequences. Um, I, I guess, uh, in terms of the, this is getting into the, the, some, the, some of the war subject matter, but it's related to the setting. I mean, the fact that we spend, you know, a significant amount of time in this movie in like pre-Nazi Germany, um, and, and we spend time in Japan with the, the rise of, uh, you know, their, of like a fascist like government or something. We see the secret police chasing him. It's just not very fun. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, it's just like a lot of not fun stuff. I mean, I feel like being in pre Nazi Germany, like I'm not appreciating the beauty of the scenes. I'm just uncomfortable. <laughs> That's kind of my personal reaction to it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, well, I, and also like those scenes are sort of like hostile because, you know, Jiro and I'm not going to say his friend's name, right? Um, they, Jiro <laughs> uh, and his boyfriend. Hon, 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 yes, Honjo. His, Honjo. Honjo. That's right. Um, I was like, I literally just watched this and I can't remember his <laughs> name. Um, so Jiro and Honjo, like all of those scenes are like they're hostile. Like they're just trying to do their jobs. But yet the they're being like super restricted and then there's like the one scene with Hanjo and he's like he's so like frustrated and mad and he's like I need to smoke a cigarette and then he like just picks up one that's already been like smoked and he's like this will do it then he like throws things and he's like we're going for a walk and I'm like all right like (laughs) I will say the original voice actor is also great but John Krasinski did a great job he did such a great job with with, with Hanjo interesting yes interesting he did really really well like especially with the i mean frustration about like the economic societal differences between japan and like other western countries or whatever i thought it was done well yes even though they don't have accents but whatever (laughs) yeah how how was castorp in the in the dub (laughs) (laughs) oh my god talking about stanley tucci uh, that makes sense that that's Stanley Tucci. That, I, I, yeah. If I were to guess who Castrop would be without looking at it, at yeah, uh, no, 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 that's that's Caproni is Stanley. Oh Tucci. my bad. Okay. Oh, um, 
Yeah. Okay, I'll start with War- Warner Herzog. That makes more sense. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stereotypical German guy. Okay, I like it. Um, That's fine. That character's funny. He but uh, me out, honestly. Like, yeah, no, he's. I think he's kind of supposed to be creepy, but uh, he ends no, up being the voice like. No, the voice was even like put it over the top. I was just like, I'm uncomfortable around you. <laughs> Can you go away? <laughs> I don't think he had that much of an accent in the sub. I don't remember. He's, he's weird, but I don't think he has like a heavy German accent or anything. Um, yeah. I agree that the German scenes are like intentionally hostile. Um, yeah, it's going. Yeah. I think this movie is just generally going for an eerie beauty instead of a fun beauty, and it's just very different for Miyazaki. Yeah, but he does have that theme of like corruption of beauty in all of his movies. This one is just yeah, like th- this is the corruption of beauty. We'll talk about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. Here's an uh, getting into the pre-war Japan setting. Napier has thoughts on that. She says the, the film's historical setting allows Miyazaki to use his artistry to recreate a lost pre-war Japan. The film's visuals lovingly evoke pre-war architecture and scenery, such as the stunning traditional house and garden of Jiro's boss Kurokawa, the quasi-European mansion belonging to Jiro's fiance and her father, and the sumptuous realized pastoral setting of Karuizawa, the famous mountain resort in the Japanese Alps, Alps. Yet it must be acknowledged that the film suffuses even its darkest details with a literally golden nostalgic light, allowing the past to seem not simply a foreign country, but one that possesses a sensuous, deep, nostalgic appeal. While Miyazaki scrupulously recreates the authentic details of a moment in history, the settings are so exquisite, the lighting so rich, and the music so evocative that the pre-war period beckons invitingly. In a sense, Miyazaki's use history to create his ultimate fantasy country. So Napier saying that this is kind of a fantasy setting for Miyazaki is what he ends up doing with kind of 30s Japan um, in, in his portrayal of that. And yeah, I don't, I don't know how different some of these uh, places, some of these settings that we see in Japan are from, from some of his fantasy worlds. I think they are similarly um, kind of uh, beautiful and uh, se- seemingly ethereal, I guess, in some ways. Well, it's also because a lot of the times, especially with his like realistic movies, I know he didn't do great with the Fireflies, but at the beginning of that, you see like the main characters and their family have quote unquote privilege, like they have money. And then this movie, Jiro's parents, like, you know, they fund him to go to uh, engineering school. The sister gets to go learn how to be a doctor. And you would just assume that it's because their family has money. And that is like, I guess you could see that as an element of like fantasy, especially in these times where a lot of people were poor and they were like kids starving on the street. But it just that part makes me the most uncomfortable with these kind of like historical movies that he's done is that all the people he focuses on have, if not an impact of their own, it's because of like the money they have. Yeah, there's even like that one scene where um, Jiro buys like the sponge cake. And then right, he tries yeah. to give it to like the two kids who are like, or the three kid children who are waiting for their parents to get off work or whatever. And even um, Honjo like says to him, like, were you expecting them to like say thank you and that you were their savior? And he like, I don't remember if he ever answered that. <laughs> so he was like, yeah, maybe I was. Yeah. Like, okay. At least so, you admit it. Yeah. Yeah, so there is a, a so uh, interesting, I, I saw this as a separate topic, but Ali's tying it into kind of the, the depiction of the setting, like maybe Miyazaki's allowed to, it's this kind of hostile period for most people in Japan is allowed to be viewed in kind of this magical way, if you're coming from a position of privilege, which I think, which I think is a really interesting point. Um, I would say I, this movie is definitely Miyazaki 
grappling with a lot of stuff about him. So that's mm-hmm. what that kind of leads me to that topic. Which I had no idea about until I read your notes. So thank you for that. I- including uh, his his privilege, uh, <laughs> his family's privilege. He, w- he, he went through bombings, uh, like World War II bombings, while he was a, a young child. But he, you know, he ultimately was from a family of of a decent amount of wealth. So he was relatively safe compared to everyone else. Um, and I do think like a lot, there is some, some grappling of, of privilege going on here intentionally. I think he's, he's pouring his, uh, his kind of soul into this movie. I mean, two very personal parts of, of this, which should be noted is we've mentioned this before. Miyazaki's mother was, um, bedridden and, uh, like through, through most of his, uh, childhood and then early adult period from tuberculosis, which is, um, what, uh, it, uh, what the love interest in this movie, Nalco, um, is suffering from, similar to what is implied in um, Totoro as the uh, the mom there, um, and then the, the sanatorium elements of that, and then uh, maybe I think that is more well known. Maybe the lesser well known is Miyazaki's dad, who he was not like close to and wasn't a huge part of his life, but his dad and his I think his uncle, like his family, they owned a factory that made parts for the Zero airplane. Um, so he's kind of personally like it's it's a, a thing that ties into his personal history and he's kind of grappling with uh similarly to Jiro probably his role in uh what the the creation of this technology ends up uh, having in in the destruction of World War II. Well, and I guess it's also like he's probably grappling with the fact that like he him and his family benefited from like you know these like machines that are just like the cause of such great like despair and destruction at the same time yeah yeah i i I definitely think so and i think all that is not a criticism it is a feature of this movie this is a yeah this is a movie where one of the big appeals to this movie this is miyazaki pouring his soul and you see it on on the screen in these different elements he portrays and i think that is like a, a very appealing element from this kind of like high critic kind of sense of of viewing films and a lot of people even if you're not viewing it from that like high of a lens like it's 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 something that is emotionally kind of resonant i think for a lot of people here's another angle in which this is uh a personal film for Miyazaki. This is for, again from Susan Napier. She says, as such, it is also clearly a peon to the work that went into the movie itself and a summation of what the animation process has been to Miyazaki over 50 years in the field with Jiro and his story acting as a stand-in. Jiro, the director suggests, was in some ways a tragic figure who gave his all and his motivation to make something beautiful is a desire that accords with Miyazaki's own life work, while the director demurs when the critic Shibuya insists that Jiro is Miyazaki, saying, I created the Jiro I wanted. It is evident that the effort depicted in the film is a proxy for Miyazaki's own lifelong turmoil. Thus, The Wind Rises becomes an uh, uh, expiation of Miyazaki's own superhuman commitment to work and a kind of bittersweet apology, or perhaps explanation, to his family and colleagues for the sacrifices he has made along the way at the film's premiere Miyazaki cried publicly for the first time in his career um mm-hmm. yeah. that I mean I, I think him. I mean good and I think this is uh clearly the most per- Miyazaki's most personal film in a lot of ways I yeah. Think. yeah yeah for Tiffany, that's really unexpected I knew nothing about that. yeah I didn't know anything about that it's it's kind of like taking me aback just a little bit just because yeah. like Especially, I guess, whenever it's spelled out for me that, like, oh, I can definitely see, like, the parallels between Miyazaki and the the Jiro he wanted or he created mm-hmm. at the same time. So, and I guess I it also um, 
makes sense for him to, you know, be so emotional about it because I like I have no doubt that his family was there whenever it premiered and that, you know, for them to see that and maybe even catch a glimpse as to like what he has also been going through and how he, you know, feels towards them would be a big deal. Yeah, we talked about on this podcast the history of uh, Miyazaki's relationship with his son, Goro, and the uh, emotional turmoil behind that. And, um, you know, you could see this as a him grappling with uh, his, his uh, lack of uh, fatherhood for, for most of his, his children's life. Um, as, uh, you know, putting his, his soul into his work, trying to create something beautiful, you know, maybe even an element of him not being sure if the beauty that he's trying to create is, is doing good. We've, um, there's a part of Napier's chapter where she describes like this element of Miyazaki still kind of like ultimately being like, I don't know if these, these movies are, are good. Children should be outside playing, not inside watching movies. Um, so I think like this, uh, the, this this uncertainty of like the the reception and the the moral effect of what he what he's even been toiling away at probably uh, similar to Jiro, and in addition to this kind of personal struggle representing his life work, the similarities to his own life that kind of go into the characters in the movie. Um, there's also him grappling with his perspective in the world, which I think mm. ties into all the war stuff. Um, which I guess we should get into. Um, (laughs) Can I jump off that? Because it definitely does. And I want to mention um, a conversation, well, not really a conversation, a paragraph that our Patreon patron, wow, I did it. Czar said about like this kind of like giving his all motivation of like the time that I didn't really think about because they said that like, well, I knew about this, like at the time, Japan's like lack of development was like competing with the West. And like at the time the country was like pursuing a nationalistic sort of like, goal for the sake of the country their people to like be on the map that like non-western countries have to well had to at the time and still have to fight for now and his jiro's rather workaholic ethic proved that push but it also like took a toll on his life with with or without um naoko whatever like it was like individual suffering for the greater good i don't agree with that lifestyle but i think miyazaki can definitely relate since he's also a like workaholic like animation workaholic makes movie about engineer workaholic it's very you could tie it into everything yeah i i think it's this one of this movie's more interesting points is it's it's not like a super major part of the movie's perspective but it's kind of inherent in everything that's happening is how japan's kind of being pushed and influenced by western powers and Mm -hmm. what's going on i think it's a great point then and this is what's explored when they're visiting germany and it's what they talk about when they get back we have to live up to this how can we ever surpass it and kind of one of the triumphs of the movie is uh jiro eventually making something that does for a brief time surpass uh the west technology um and uh I think that should be noted. It should be noted when we're talking about all the the kind of atrocities Japan commits in this World War II time period and obviously has committed upon them, um, that Japan was in its the start of its history forced into the the open the West, the Western culture and the openness of the world by Western powers who take advantage of Japan who just wants to be closed off and uh mm-hmm. and ser- serve their own people. And uh, you know, this path that Japan we see culminate in a really terrible way around World War II that Japan goes on, you know, is is set upon by 
uh, imperialist nations, of course. So I think that's like context you have to keep in mind for yeah. what's going on with yeah. Japan here. At the same time, all this, you know, still some terrible things that are happening for sure. It's, it's all kind of true at once and it is, it is, it's difficult to grapple with. But, um, I do think the movie does a good job of portraying that context. I think it's, it's, uh, to me, one of its more intellectually interesting aspects of the film. Yeah, that's what makes it like it succeeds in like making you un <laughs> going back to making you uncomfortable, but like keeping you grounded. Like you have to remember the context. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. the context. Well, and I, and I think a lot of that on like discomfort comes from like probably the fact that we, you know, we're Americans and right. we're like <laughs> no, <laughs> we were the opposing figure at the mm-hmm. time. And they're also like in the background. They mentioned like, oh, well, they're we're trying to like beat America. That's never gonna happen. Like it's just very um, pessimistic in yes. general. Yeah, there are mentions of America, and yeah, it should be noted we are coming at this movie from an American perspective. Um, I'm about to quote Susan Napier, who has an American perspective, although I think it's bad best to quote her because she is incorporating many Japanese perspectives into into her writing. So that's like in the most digestible form we can get. So um, we're going to try to pers- portray other perspectives. It's not just us that find the, the portrayal of war in this movie off-putting. It's kind of especially a lot of people in Japan. Um, so we'll, we'll note this. Uh, but yeah, let's, let's talk into this as a war, the context of Wind Rises is a war movie or a lack of war movie. Should be noted, we talked a lot on the Howl's Moving Castle podcast about how that is Miyazaki intending to uh, make his his anti-war movie. Um, and uh, that's his big anti-war message, anti-Iraq war message. And now we have him getting kind of back to the subject matter in a much more complex way. Um, and probably a movie that is much more centered just inherently because it's about real a real past war and contributions to the war than this kind of vague war that's in the background of howls maybe the similarity between both of them is that war is pretty sanitized in both of those movies like we never yeah see, we I, never... Was, I was gonna just say like it's interesting that like he like doesn't like there's no like de- real depictions of war uh, like i like your way of saying that it's sanitized like that's definitely sanitized <laughs> Yeah, in in Howells, the the war is mostly off screen. We see one one like, like one scene, scene. of uh, Howell fighting vaguely shadowy figures, um, and in this movie, the war is is basically completely off screen. Uh, should be mentioned before Ali was bringing up uh, Grave of the Fireflies, which uh, features ta- which is Takada's view on the war, and he I think led a less privileged life uh, during World War II, but went through some terrible experiences. So we have seen a variety of I think of ex- experiences to a certain extent in in yeah. the Ghibli, in yeah. Ghibli canon. Um, but here, you know, here we see another perspective on Miyazaki's work. So let's, let's, here's like, uh, an introductory quote on this subject from Napier. I, w- I want to point out, I have some long quotes to read from Napier here. Uh, I, I'm pulling stuff to, that try, I'm trying to make it the clearest and the, the most easy to read on a podcast, but I am lacking some of the nuance she portrays in her chapter. So if you're interested in the fuller picture, I'd recommend reading her, her chapter on this movie in Miyazaki world, because I, I, I am lacking some nuance here. Um, but I think she has some, some very good points and she is very critical of Miyazaki in some ways, which I 
never seen her be critical before of, of, of Miyazaki and the subject matter. Um, but there's some nuance in what she's trying to say. But hey, okay, so in, in general, like his, Miyazaki making a war movie here, she says, in the eyes of some viewers, both at home and abroad, however, The Wind Rises is in with its con- celebration of the zero, a politically ugly film. To them, the movie brings up painful controversies follow- involving evasion and obfuscation concerning the zero's role and Japan's war responsibility. Most harshly, some critics suggest that the movie and its director are outright denial of one of the darkest periods of Japan's 20th century history, the long buildup to a war that would end up that would end not only in the destruction of Japan, but also in the devastation of the lands subject to Japanese militarism, Korea, China, and Southeast Asia. In their eyes, the Wind Rises is guilty of white, whitewashing the, in the war and responsibility, choosing to ignore Japan's imperialist aggression and the hundreds of thousands of deaths it caused, and instead highlighting Zero's technological superiority. Indeed, the only actual death in the movie is a romantic one when Jiro's beautiful young life succumbs to off screen to tuberculosis. Miyazaki acknowledged that his own staff and family had doubts about whether he should do the film, and perhaps he did as well. In the interview with Shibuya, he mentions how he would put in and then take out a particular cut because of cowardice. But Miyazaki is not a coward. He clearly wants the film to be provocative, to stir up discussions of difficult matters his countrymen for decades wanted to sweep under the rug. As he said to Shibuya in a diatribe against the stupidity of his countrymen, the Japanese always sit back and thereby end up choosing war, and we're doing the exact same thing again, presumably a reference to the Japanese government's attempts to change the constitution to allow for aggressive warfare. Um, I think that last part is the context, maybe why Miyazaki ends up making this movie as the hot button issue at the time. I'm unsure to what extent it still remains a big topic in Japan, but like the, the you know, the America forces a constitution onto Japan in which they cannot have a, an aggressive military. And there's been kind of recent pushes by conservative governments in Japan to eliminate that and to allow them to have more of a military, which Miyazaki has been on the record of being strongly against changing that. Um, so I think that's on his mind during all this. This part of like there's there's doubts while making the movie whether this was a good idea, which is is which is chronicled. I want to say there this the, the production of Wind Rises is very well documented. There's two documentaries I'd recommend on this if you're interested. The the big one is The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, which I think probably the best Miyazaki docu- documentary out there chronicles the production of this movie. And then I've referenced Ten Years with Hayao Miyazaki, which is available for free on the NHK website. Episode four. Uh, no cheap excuses also deals with uh, the same production uh, and includes some similar scenes, which I'll, I'll talk about. But um, you see during those two documentaries, it's like, hey, should we be should we be making this? There doubt there's doubts among the staff. So it's like they they this it's realized this is controversial while while it's being made. And the main lens I think when you see those documentaries is like, are we sure this movie is anti war enough? Um, because uh, everyone at Ghibli is very known for being politically anti war, especially led by Miyazaki. Um, and so people are kind of questioning, like, uh, to what extent is this an anti-war movie? I, um, I mean, it's hard to say, like, to what extent. I do think that it, it's interesting that, uh, um, in Napier's quote that, you know, they talk about, like, the director is in an outright denial. And I wouldn't say that he's necessarily in denial. I would say it's more so, like, because, you know, we already discussed that he grew up you know, more wealthy. And while he was still alive during, you know, all of these tragic events that took place, he was also, you know, more privileged at the time. So maybe this is all he really, like, he knows of the time, you know what I mean? Of like actual war. 
But <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. He's speaking to his experiences. I mean, he was a kid during it, so he's he's never yeah. he's never fighting in in wars, and yeah, so, so he's and, kind of and, focusing and, on experiences similar to his own. So I think I I mean I definitely think that's a like a a harsh criticism for sure, just because <laughs> like he was a kid at the time, like he wasn't actually fighting, and so this is you know his most direct uh like contact with like war during war times so and i i do think that this has enough you know anti-war mo like excuse me anti-war uh like messages especially you know considering like the overall theme is you know creating something beautiful that's going to like cause so much destruction like it's i mean it's sad to think or to think or to even know that something that you're creating is going to cause devastation um not for yourself but for other people like and to hold that sort of responsibility is not not fun for anyone (laughs) Yeah, I, I think that on a basic level, the movie does try to make clear it's not, uh, it doesn't like the use of the zero for war purposes. It's kind of its big yeah. anti-war theme. It, there's a part where Jiro's like, oh, we could make it so good, oh, but, you know, we have to add in the guns, so that's not yeah. work. <laughs> so, well, yeah. it's, what is it? Like, every time he, Jiro, like, dreams and he meets the Italian engineer, like, the Italian engineer's always, like, talking about, like, his newest design that, you know, is meant for more of, like, like leisure more leisurely like flight versus like you know and he even says like this isn't meant for war or just you know or it's not meant to hold guns it's meant to like carry people in this design and so i think that there's there's enough of that message like sprinkled throughout yeah and even when they're in germany and they're looking at the design they're like this it would be a waste to put a bomb here like the people can sit in the wing Yeah, Yeah. definitely. There's a ton of that stuff in the movie. I think it's clear at a high level what he is going for. Um, I have like two, I have like a controversial hashtag spicy take on like this (laughs) thing. Well, first of all, I think that like if your staff and, you know, if you're having doubts about whether or not you should do something that's controversial, if you like have ties to it personally, whether you're like a person of color writing about like what people of color have experienced or what have you i think that's a good sign that like you are considering it enough that you are like being careful and you don't want to do the wrong thing and also the fact that they like stated that he's in denial of the darkest period in japan's history whatever like it's i feel like they're not taking into account that people at the time most people in the country and some people do still exist who do think that way like that they you know like we're going to be militaristic and everything's going to be better. And we're going to like have the more rights for our country or whatever. Like people did think that back then. And that like, it's brought up in the movie a bunch of times. Like, even if you don't see the main characters that way, they will touch on the fact that like, that's what our country is thinking. And you know, what can we, what can you do except survive with it? I don't like personally agree with that take, but you know, people are like that. were like that back then. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mentioned again, I think that ties into the how the, the, the hot button political issue Miyazaki has on his mind making this is the conservative attempt to bring back exactly. the military. In yeah. Japan. So there's, of course, the conservative side of, of Japan, which does still think that way. It's a great point. All this criticism is coming from a liberal perspective. This is all like, yeah, it, yeah. You know, this, is, this is all like, uh, it, it's not like, hey, why you because, you know, the conservative criticism would be, why aren't you portraying war in a positive way, I guess? But uh, <laughs> yeah. like Miyazaki is known for Miyazaki's 
known for being kind of a beacon of liberal principles in Japan. He's this uh, pretty celebrity in, in a lot of ways, and he is outspoken in favor of a lot of liberal causes throughout uh, the, these these decades that he's been making movies. And these criticisms come from a place of people feeling let down after they had heard uh, him uh, espousing these progressive ideals and then maybe make something that's not the most nuanced in a progressive way. Um, so yeah, it's a good point. Should be noted. These are all kind of inter like within progressive circle criticisms. Um, I'm just the fact that they like said that it's well, rather that some harsh critics thought that he is choosing to ignore Japan's imperialist aggression. People do that all the time in Japan. Yeah. Like it's yeah. very, you know, pe- it's pe- people are holding Miyazaki to a high standard here. I, I think yeah. that's for sure. Yeah. A little too sure. high. Let's, let's get into that, yeah. that claim some more. Let's get into that claim with the next quote here. Um, so this is about how the movie does not necessarily confront war, which isn't, you know, isn't inherent in the criticism, but I think we've talked about how it sanitizes uh, war already. So I think this is, we probably agree with this to a certain extent, but Susan Napier says in the movie, Far more than the manga, however, the plane also becomes implicitly a thing of immense sadness, beauty distorted for evil and stupid purposes. At the end of the movie, Miyazaki incorporates a dream sequence in which Jiro tells his imaginary mentor, the pioneering Italian aircraft maker Caproni, not a single one came back. Incredible, Jiro is correct. The plane that had ruled the Pacific for a few brief years was ultimately eclipsed by more advanced aircraft that uh, wrestled control of the skies and helped to turn the tide of war against Japan. The last part of the Zero's history was even more tragic. It became the vehicle ridden by the kamikaze fighters in the last months of the war, young men selected for suicide bombing missions against the American Navy. The movie makes no mention of the kamikaze, nor, besides the occasional visions of destruction granted to Jiro uh, and the occasional intonation of the word Hametsu, destruction, uh, does it ever come to grips with the terrible defeat uh, that the Zero, by its early successes, ironically helped create by giving Japanese an overinflated sense of confidence in the war effort, the Zeros helped to expand and prolong the war. In movie after movie, Miyazaki World has displayed the stupidity and horror of war, and Miyazaki has taken every opportunity to excoriate the military in interviews and speeches. So his final film's co- lack of confrontation with the war and its aftermath seems especially problematic. I think that last part is a good summary of some uncomfortability with uh, how war is handled here. Miyazaki that known I can for being actually get behind. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) In a general sense, Miyazaki is known for being very anti-war. We don't really approach the war at all here uh, in a movie that is centered around it. We just kind of avoid it. We stop right before the the fighting really starts is is where the movie ends up. uh, The last part of the movie. For me, the fact that uh, if if you're like I, I like I had thought this was probably true, and looking it up, uh, like uh, the zero is the main plane which kamikaze attacks were done in. Yeah, pretty striking yeah. to learn that after you watch this movie, and the fact that they don't bring it up once. It's not it's yeah. not brought up once. Yeah. Um, now it's you, not, I mean, I well, guess if you if you're a weeb, you would know this, so it's implied. But like, it's it would be a nice to have like a narration to be like a, I don't even know just to bring it up thematically yeah. it is maybe brought up in the fact that we have many the the main potentially main theme of this movie is beauty distorted for evil um and, right. you know the implied yeah. evil is what ends up happening with the airplane but it's also well no you mentioned that not a single one came back and it's also shown visually like the planes fly away and they never come back but yeah, he, you know, he does say at the end not a single that is the reference to it if you um, don't know what like kamikazes are then you're not gonna have that you're background. not gonna get that 
that really like that's dark it's it's, 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 it's brutal context for this movie it's it's uh yeah i I, this is one of the main things that makes makes this movie really hard to watch um i think the context of this is the kamikaze plane and we're looking at it with such a positive yes well and even like it, it changes like almost like the context of scenes where like whenever he they're like asking like oh well how many knots can it get up to and he's like, oh, well, like oh, it's designed God. to do 270. And they're like, they only want 220. And he's like, yeah, well, in a week, 220 won't be like enough. And so I think oh, like, yeah, yeah like, I'm like, Ugh. very brutal. I don't like <laughs> yeah. that anymore. And, and as, yeah. the, uh, as, as the quote alludes to, like the, the technological prowess of the zero is, uh, you know, greatly helps the Japanese for a time period, but ends up like ultimately killing more people. You know, I feel like um, it's it's it is kind of ironic context, I guess. And uh, it's it's uh, to me that the kamikaze thing is, um, is is kind of this direct context you like get implied at the end of the movie and makes it really, really tough. It's it's just the reverential light in which the building of this plane is kind of looked on, um, I yeah. think, which is yeah. um, leads to the uncomfortability. Like, personally, um, I did not care how the airplanes were made because engineers, while they're incredible, make me just feel really stupid. But that just makes me feel upset, knowing yeah. that that's, like, did they worked like, on it so hard. Not only do I feel stupid, I'm also <laughs> upset. Like, <laughs> Did you like all the math problems that uh, no, Jiro was I, doing? I absolutely, I did not care. I wanted them to skip past it because it just makes me anxious. Math? I'm glad they acknowledged math. math in some way, no, even if it was I'm, one shot. I'm upset with you now. I didn't approve this. I'm pro-math, okay? <laughs> this is my personal, discussion. personal opinion. Okay, but this, even math that was I mean it was I don't know what kind of math like calculus it's, it's crazy it's like aviation <laughs> crazy math, which math. Is, which is yeah. terrible I don't I don't, I don't know to what extent it was uh, accurate I never know. went past college algebra so this was like I don't yeah. know I was like do you know what calculus is it's worse no. than that like <laughs> <laughs> they didn't even it's have also, a calculator uh, what is that ruler yeah he is that ruler thing yeah no that the ruler is a real thing i like from what i know of like the aviation like industry and like and like i've known like some avionics like engineers and stuff like that i'm like i don't know what your your messed up ruler is but but it's we have computers now yeah okay so we we talked about how the the criticism of the fact that we just kind of don't display the war and we stop right before the war now and we mentioned how like the film is like lovingly looking at a plane that is ending up used for evil so here's the Susan Napier's uh, discussing of that and how it's handled in the movie she says on one hand Miyazaki loathes war and fiercely protests against it on the other hand he creates manga and films that celebrate the glories of military technology Rather than explain the apparent contradiction, it is perhaps better to embrace it, as Miyazaki's producer Toshio Suzuki suggests. By his own account, it is Suzuki who, after reading the manga, persuaded Miyazaki to create the film version of The Wind Rises. The reason, according to the producer, was that he wanted to see how a supposed pacifist who loves to draw military technology would pick these contradictory positions in a film. According to Suzuki, Miyazaki is not alone in his contradictions. The producer says many Japanese people after the war felt this way and goes on to suggest that The Wind Rises might serve as a hint as how to live in the, in the times to come. In fact, across history and geography, humans have celebrated technological progress linked to suffering and death. Miyazaki deals with this directly with the, with the, deals directly with this troubling aspect of human spirit when he has Caproni ask Jiro, what, which would you rather live in? A world with or without pyramids? Caproni's implication is that the technological and aesthetic achievement of the pyramids was achieved only through hideous human suffering and sacrifice 
Overall, the film seems to be arguing for the pyramids, no matter what cost, a thorny message that may be hard for some audiences to accept. In The Wind Rises, Miyazaki is attempting to confront a question that has engaged him in previous films, but to do so in a new and more challenging way. This is the question of whether technology can or should serve as an end in itself. In films such as Nausicaa, Laputa, and Princess Mononoke, science fiction and fantasy help the issue help kept the issue at a safe remove. In this film, Miyazaki creates a new kind of fantasy, a history that stops just before the darker side of technological development appears. Yet this fantasy is historically grounded and as such no longer quite so arm's length. That the Zeros were magnificent technological achievements that brought death to tens of thousands is more than an inconvenient truth. Um, To me, this is like the crux of the moral conundrum of this film. Is this is about Miyazaki's love of planes, which are (laughs) used for war largely in recent human history. I mean, obviously, there's also a lot of planes used for commercial purposes and stuff, but he is specifically drawing planes that are kind of like uh, like fighter planes and stuff, and that's what he's he's depicting in this movie. Um, And it's like uh, I think it's really interesting, and it is documented in these two documentaries I, I mentioned. How it's you know Suzuki like. Uh, who is, uh, as I mentioned, the uh, co-founder of Ghibli, the third most important person in, you need to know about G- uh, Studio Ghibli. He's like uh, encouraging Miyazaki to make this movie. This isn't something that's natural to Miyazaki is to make this the, the film version of this. Um, I think both because it's it's so morally complex and because uh, it's an adult film, too, which is certainly outside of his uh, his his normal realm of films. Um, but, you know, I. I like, I, I find this movie ultimately morally questionable, but I also, I guess, agree with Suzuki because I do think it's fascinating to have it, to see it made, ultimately. Like, I I, like, yeah. I am appreciative yeah. of it existing, and I think it is, like, a really interesting, even if it kind of, like, uh, challenges your view of Miyazaki, challenges your view of, like, of Studio Ghibli, of people like this. It, like, it is, it's a very challenging movie. Um it is it is really interesting to have it uh, exist and to analyze it like this. Um, it itself is a pyramid. <laughs> yeah. Wow, Illuminati. <laughs> I want to come in with another spicy take because they see, like, the quote where they say, oh, it seems to be like the film is arguing for the pyramids no matter what the cost. I don't agree with that. It's arguing yeah. that, like like maybe your country argues for the pyramids and you have to go along with it because you have to, like, survive. Like, you just have to go with whatever like the status quo is which i hate and i hate that we live in a society but they even said like across history humans celebrate technological process linked to suffering and i agree with that take but i don't well, think it's that like i don't know it's complicated I don't think it's that direct it, yeah it's like okay if you think about the history of like aviation and the airplane like the first airplane wasn't in, like invented or created or engineered for war, it was just because you know two brothers were like, "Hey, let's see if we can fly." Like, you know what I mean? So it's it's interesting that, especially in this quote, that they're like, "Oh, like you know, technology is only created and celebrated after it's been used for a, like warlike purposes." But I don't think that's necessarily true. And I mean, yeah, like the like the history of the pyramids is terrible, and the history of this, you know, the zero aircraft is also, you know, a complicated and not you know beautiful but i mean 
I don't know. It's it's complicated. <laughs> yeah, it's not. They're treating it like it's black and white, and I don't think it's it's. Yeah. Horrible. Okay. So I, in the movie, uh, Caproni does posit that we are better off in a world, right? With, yeah. Uh, yeah. But it is reasonable to suggest that is not what Miyazaki is saying. It's just yeah, what just Caproni because the character is. says yeah. that doesn't mean that's what the movie. I, is I, saying. I do think exactly. Caproni. If if anyone in this movie is a stand-in for the the movie's viewpoint, there's sometimes the, that narrator type character. It would be the kind of dream guy, the Caproni yeah. guy. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think he's the closest, but it's still reasonable to not interpret it like that. At the very least, at the very least, this movie is ambiguous with its position on, uh, I think, on on this. Uh, be- and here's the reason. It's not just about this pyramids thing, which for me, uh, no, I don't agree. It's worth to have the pyramids if it caused a lot of people to die. Uh, so right. I'm very uncomfortable right. with this notion. Um, and to be fair. Uh, we are hammered. I think it's hammered into our heads growing up, uh, that pyramids, uh, like this kind of notion of beauty with sacrifice. I do think like society tries to get you to believe that, uh, that it's worth it. Like we're, yeah. we see the pyramids as this yeah. incredible thing. I mean, like, maybe it's just an American education thing. Especially when slaves are involved. Like, um, we, we, yeah. I mean, look at America in terms of history of kind of sanitizing things that are built with, with slave labor. It's constant, um, constant. And the, our view of the pyramids is in accord with that. Um, the, uh, the big thing you have to keep in mind here is that it's not just a question of the, what's positive with the pyramids. This is what the movie is about because Jiro spends his whole life making the zero airplane and it ends up being used for evil. And, uh, he is aware that this is happening. Like it's, (laughs) yeah, Jiro is complicit in my opinion in the destruction that is a result of the zero airplane. Yeah. Now, is it his yeah. fault? Is it like, is he a terrible person? Like, those are more complicated questions, but he's complicit. And this movie does not hold him accountable whatsoever, in my opinion. I don't think that, uh, the, this, this could be a potentially more intellectually interesting or at least different movie. I think it's intellectually interesting on its own, but if this movie attempted to portray Jiro's complice, complicitness, then, we we could get into a lot uh, more moral complexity here. Miyazaki isn't interested in that, and potentially by not portraying that complicit nature, he is in, inherently endorsing this uh, this view that the pyramids are worth it. He is inherently celebrating the zero airplane in all its beauty. That's all the movie is about, and he literally stops before it's ever used for any harm. Um, I think it's in- completely reasonable to interpret. I think the, the and if if not the intent. Then the ultimate result of this movie on its audiences yeah, that's fair. as yeah. as a as an endorsement of this notion that the pyramids are worth it. That's yeah. the thing. It's definitely impact over intent. But with this, like the way they phrased it, it sounded like they were like the intent of it was this, and I'm like, eh, I don't think so. But yeah, it was definitely I, the impact. Yeah, I was like, I, I think that's definitely like the bigger debate, though, is the impact over the intent because yeah, you know, Jiro Jiro always wanted to like create planes. Right. Yeah, like it was never his intent because to create planes a, are beautiful. Yeah, it was never his intent to create a plane that you know caused devastation and you know brought about the deaths of tens of thousands of people. But also, like I do ab- agree that there's a a bit of compli- complacentness on his part because, like, is your dreams like worth those lives and there's definitely like no accountability whenever it comes to that for sure like i I really thought go ahead i was gonna say like i think like it would be it would be a 
I think it's interesting that they're using pyramids as like the beautiful thing that they're, you know, sort of like, I guess, like visually using while like, why wouldn't you say something along the lines of like, oh, like, would you rather a world with or without the Mona Lisa? Like what? Like it changes like, like in my mind are exclusively bad. But yeah, like I mean, they're I, I guess they're I don't I don't even pyramids are considered one of the seven wonders of the world. It's it's the, yeah, it's the it's it's, I think it's the perfect analogy because we know it's built by slave labor and we also know it's considered one of the greatest achievements in human history. Um, <laughs> it's, it's like like America. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So I. Uh, the, the, it, it's, just, it's just like it's i don't know like it's so hard to like like you want to hold jiro responsible but at the same time like you you can't but i don't know like yeah so to, to, to explain it a little further this movie is clear that jiro is not interested in 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 contributing to war in his planes being used yeah. for war my personal viewpoint and the viewpoint of i think uh potentially the critics here that are being cited is that um that is not enough to just say hey i wish this wouldn't be used for war but i'm gonna go about making it anyway knowing that it's used for war yes. he, he's yeah. con- he's contributing yes. to it you know with the knowledge that it will be used for war and does well, not even like stop and think about it, about it. He yeah. like says it outright. He's like, this country could feed like the whole country if it yeah. was paying as much as it is to Germany or whatever. But um, if they want airplanes, I'll make them. And like what what makes me annoyed with part of this movie, like I love the sister, partly because she's voiced by my women on the dub. But anyway, she's great. <laughs> she's smart. She points out like into um, with Jiro in reference to his relationship with Naoko that like he's being selfish. He should like focus on what's best for her first and like i really expected her to be like you're being an enabler like making these planes for the country that's only going to result in devastation like be a doctor with me and do an actual good thing like i'm annoyed that they didn't use her for that kind of because she's the only one with the brain cell in this whole movie (laughs) the one brain cell yeah there's uh especially uh, whenever like they were like people are constantly remarking and say like stating that Jiro's like a genius. Like he's right. like this like up and coming. Yeah, un- right. That's engineer. the thing. This movie portrays Jiro as the only one that could have made the zero. So he yeah. is kind of directly responsible with the fact that he does uh, in that regard. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Well, I, that- it's, 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 it's interesting that also like that Jiro, cause you know, again, Jiro's only ever wanted to make beautiful planes. Like that's, that's been his, his goal and his dream. But like, if you're so like up and coming and such a genius at what you do, why is it that you have to go? Like, why do you have to achieve it via a military, like a military route or a mi- yeah, and I, and I think I think the, tra- <laughs> the tragicness of his situation is that is the only path uh, available to him. Like right, we see, he that, wanted to be yeah. a pilot, and then he was not colorblind. He just we couldn't see. Yeah, we see he wants he to be a pilot. Play. He can't do that. We see that uh, many people are don't have jobs throughout the war. There's a specific scene. It's like no one has jobs here, so he gets a job. It's just at a military contractor making, uh, you know, making tools of destruction. That is presumably his only path available to make planes in this time period. Um, and we don't. If this movie wanted to have Jiro stop and ruminate about the consequences of his, his decisions, I think it could have done that a lot more. Um, I think it's clearly not as as interested in that. And related, relating it back to Miyazaki, Miyazaki, again, loves war technology. It's not that he likes planes in general. He specifically is drawing military planes. So this notion of um, he is celebrating the beauty of something that is used for evil purposes, we, like, we can bring that back to what I view to kind of be the main theme of the, mu- the movie, the corruption of beauty. 
um, that uh, he is clearly uh, not deterred too much by in his own personal musings in terms of drawing um because um, he, he drew this as a manga before and the manga ends uh, is like less story based more just like here's pretty warplanes um and you know he's done that he's done that kind of throughout his movies um he's not really interested in the fact that these are tools he's interested in celebrating the beauty of something that is ends up being used for destruction i think that's like a uh, intellectually interesting theme on its own i think it's a very common theme in in a lot of things um mm. the uh it's his 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 drawing of manga of warplanes is not really morally consequential compared to what Jiro is doing. Um, so I will say that, like, it's not that if he is a hobby, he wants to draw warplanes. Sure, now he is like the most influential uh, animation artist of all time, and so him putting a lot of military technology in his movies. Um, but he also clearly has anti-war themes throughout. So I don't think people would argue he ends up having a moral negative consequence because of putting these types of planes in. I think he clearly shows them used for destruction. It's only kind of in this film where he finally like fully celebrates the technology to the extent that he kind of is personally doing. Um, and you know, it's, 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 it's really off-putting for me. Like, and I think for a lot of people, I think that's, that's basically what it comes down to is like, um, it's, it's like, I accept that this is something Miyazaki likes on his own. I accept that it's how it's used in his previous movies. It's just here where he kind of like gets into pretty clearly questionable, if not negative territory with his, uh, with his revering of the beauty of something that has moral negative consequence. Um, You know, despite all that, it's still really interesting what he does get into. Um, It's not like I want him to to get to. It's not like I want the version of the movie where Jiro constantly thinks about the the consequences of his actions. Because, you know, viewing this as a uh, viewing this movie as a reflection of Miyazaki, I think is far more interesting. Like, uh, Like he's making the movie that's true to himself. To a certain extent, he's really like taking off the mask that is there to a certain extent when he's making these fantasy children oriented films. Um, this is the truest uh, display of uh, of his his tastes and his 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 moral composition. At least at in old age, it should be noted. You know, he's he is very old at this point. So, um, you know, like what would forty year old Miyazaki have have thought of this movie? Have made this movie? I'm not sure. Um, he's also gone through a lot of life experience. It's very complicated. But you know, I think you know the the appealing part of this movie is certainly this is like an honest reflection of a very complicated. Uh, and uh, influential and incredible man, and like his, uh, his the display of that on the story, the reflection of that on the story in which he's telling. It's yeah, definitely. Like they... I was going to say it's definitely like quite because you know this is was supposedly his last movie, and so it's definitely like an interesting way for him to go out mm-hmm. as well. Like, but it's not yeah. his last movie, so I guess it doesn't <laughs> apply anymore. <laughs> Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what ends up. Uh... I still like the take that it hints that it, well, it hints to its audience. Like, how do you want to live? Like, do you want to yeah. live in a society like this or nah? Like, think for yourself. Kind of. I, I kind of prefer like a more. I mean, it's it, it's hard to sit with, but I prefer that than having something like in your face being like, "This is how you should live." Like, don't do this, do this. Like, to me, that makes me more uncomfortable. Or even it, it gets you to sort of like. Think about, okay, you want to, you know, create something beautiful. How can you go about it in a way that's not like the pyramids or right. like the the zero plane? Where you so, consider all of the consequences, probably. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I think that's a nice, generous interpretation of this being kind of like intellectually open to interpretation. It's certainly not a moralistic movie that is throwing a theme at you. Um, so yeah, I think I think you could totally. I, I see that. I think it's for both. Sure. Like it's throwing I, themes yeah. at you, but it's not telling you what. The, what the most throw the most throwing this movie does is like uh, Jiro talking about how he doesn't want his planes used for war, and that's yeah. like um, yeah. It's, it's clearly I feel like it's clearly in response to Mizaki being afraid of this movie not being anti-war enough, so he kind of puts those uh, definitely those things. I'm also curious how the actual man like came to terms with that after everything happened because he I, did he live through World War Two. I know nothing about. Uh, I think so. Question. Yeah, I think so. Um, <laughs> and Miyazaki read uh, Jiro's autobiography growing up, and so that's why he's. Uh, yeah, he lived until 1982. Um, oh. oh wow! Uh, so uh, I think you know, compl- <laughs> complicated figure, but uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, so. I'm sure he must have had regrets. He wasn't a terrible person for doing what he did, but he was an enabler, complicit, whatever. Yeah, yeah and, and obviously, ultimately, in the grand scheme of things. Jiro is not the person who right. is most at fault. It should, be, it should be noted it is, you know, the people with the highest powers in charge of making these war decisions. And then it's Mitsubishi, the company, is more responsible than him. And then it's, you know, like, it's not like yeah. Yeah. we're talking levels of magnitude, but it's still a pyramid, like April said before. <laughs> yep. Everything's a pyramid. And, and of course, the surrounding context of how the, the Japan is uh, dealt, dealt uh, terrible hands by the rest of the world and imperialist nations. Um, all, of, all of this is surrounding context. This movie, like, uh, you know, it is it is worth it to view it through the lens of personal response, personal moral responsibility, I believe. Or at least yeah. Um, I, yeah. that's what I think. I don't know if the, the this movie is at least somewhat interested in that in terms of viewing Jiro's personal moral choices, but not clearly ultimately that interested in terms of this other lens of Jiro grappling with with everything. Anyway, I think we said it, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's. I, I think that that's like even even though we spent a long time on that, that's kind of the short version of how complicated uh, the subject is in this movie. Um, and I don't know if we want to use this as transition. That's like half the movie. Here's the other half, which I was is. <laughs> talk about like the thing that's focused on more if i don't well, maybe it's not focused on more i don't know it's complicated with this whole romance thing because it feels like it's put above the war in the sense that like it's the war isn't depicted like we'd normally expect from an anti-war person yeah you get you get his yeah. personal romantic life instead of these shots of the war instead of front life but so i i was struck by how dominant the romance is in the second half of the movie Two. watching it again yeah. i think the first half is mainly focused on jiro's rising career and then the second half is like 70 30 romance <laughs> like yeah uh, uh, well, maybe it's because she's dying. I guess that's why yeah. they had to like yeah, kind of got to bring it up a hundred because that's you know, also you... how the character felt. Um, I, at a high level, uh, let let's note that uh, Miyazaki is not one known for romance, and uh, he <laughs> up until uh, Howl's Moving Castle, he basically has very minimal displays of romance. I mean, in his movies, he directs. He does have. Uh, uh, some more in the ones he writes i think there's there's some more romance stories but um he's really you know no characters ever kiss until howls right that's something like that's kind of memed about with miyazaki and then there's kind of this like very vague kind of kiss at the end of howls um and uh then in ponyo which you could view that movie as entire as very romance centric as well although it's like a very child romance and it's not uh it's i view it less like as a, a romance like adoration versus yeah i view i view it more as like a friendship but it's, yeah they're it's, best friends they seem it's, to it's be in good a lot friends. of ways miyazaki is portray is portrayed they seem to be good friends there's a lot of ways miyazaki is portraying it in terms of romance and it ends you know with a kiss as well um and so all the last three his last three movies here 
Um, we've talked about late stage Miyazaki, um, and I would view these three. Napier views these views these three as kind of uh, a group of of his films. Personally, you know, I I think I echo Napier's sentiments when I say he there each of these three is a step down probably from his earlier films in each of their own ways. They each have kind of these flaws to them. Um, Howl's Ponyo and then Wind Rises. Um, but also each of them are, are romantic centric. I don't see those two tied together or anything. I just think it's uh, also an interesting direction he ends up going. And here in this movie, this is a, a full on adult romance that is, is portrayed like extensively, epically, dramatically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I'm a it's... big fan, even though it's, it's controversial. <laughs> just in what's, the what's... background of everything, it's uncomfortable, but it's, for me, I think it's the best he's done romance, but I also just love the drama. I live for it. I, I think this is by far his best romance, for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. In terms of I will his also say, movies. apart from this one, and I believe Poppy Hill and um, Whisper of the Heart, nobody says I love you, except in these movies. And that's not like a common thing in Japan, because, you know, repressed feelings. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think you could do these <laughs> earlier romances as is not over displays of feelings in accordance with the culture. Um, but yeah, no, in this movie we get, I love yous. We get a marriage. We get, uh, many kisses. Um, perhaps the, dirty perhaps the most striking thing in the history of Miyazaki films is we get an implication of sex in this movie. Yes. Um, and we get okay. with consent. Yes. Well, well sure. But yes. like, yeah, of course. For me, but, uh, and also, it, um, not, not implied. Um, Initiated by the wife, because yes. yeah, girl, get it. Um, but I'm dying, but you still gotta get it. Like <laughs> before I die, please. He's like, uh, are you sure? And yeah, um, but it's it's. Uh, I mean, before Wind Rises came out, you would never ever expect him to ever make a movie which had any scene that's scenes that imply having sex in it. And that was uh, like the most wild part of the movie for me. I'm not gonna lie. If you're, if you're looking at this from a Miyazaki scholar perspective, like all of the stuff is like kind of in accordance, a more extreme version, all these themes and stuff, but it's in accordance with the views you know he has. But then you get to like the way the romance is handled, and especially that's it's shocking. Like, uh, it is. Like it, <laughs> but it's very well done, and it's un- unexpectedly so because you don't see it ever. Yeah, I think I think if you view it as like he's written and contributed to some incredible romance films in the Ghibli canon, I think it's you could view this in accordance with that. But um, you wouldn't expect him to direct his own like the multiple kissing scenes um, and uh, just a, a story which is prevailing, I think, throughout the Was movie. There no, like co-director or anything for this? Mm, I mean, no, no. Yeah, wow. And- yeah, written and directed by me. I mean, obviously, there's a ton of people in Ghibli who are yeah, yeah, animation-wise influential to, to all those movies. Um, but no, yeah, it's so this this yeah, oh yeah no co co writer anything would be that's the what I meant. Thing. No, yeah, yeah, I mean this is you know this is um very Miyazaki. It's based on his own manga. He's adapting his own manga based on his favorite book growing up. Like, uh, is there a sex scene in the manga? <laughs> Uh, I know. I like. I said. I think the manga is. I haven't read it, but I, I've read. It's much more focused on the the planes, uh, less on the romance. So mm-hmm. I think it's probably there, but more of a background detail. But yeah, he he takes it from this. How do you live? Or no, that's the next movie. He takes it from uh, the Wind Has Risen book. Um, and uh, I think it's probably appealing to Miyazaki and the the way it relates to um, what he went through with losing someone with his mother. Um, yeah. I think that's a, that's a big aspect of this. And. I, I do think he's latched on more to personal intimacy, though, later in his life, at least in the displays of, of his films. And that's really interesting um, yeah. that he's I more found, interested in those displays. 
I was gonna say I found like this like the small displays of affection were like like I really enjoyed them. Like whenever he uh Jiro's working and she's like just yes. hold my hand like, <laughs> I Listen, like I'm a fan oh. of small gestures over grand gestures period so that yes. just makes me cry yeah especially because yeah. you know she doesn't like feel well and everything like that and then yeah I didn't like that he smoked in front of her though like don't I really? hated that she's got tuberculosis <laughs> you had to smoke a cigarette really <laughs> she's dying right next to you and you're gonna she's... contribute to that <laughs> Yeah, uh, we've never really talked about Miyazaki's relationship with tobacco and smoking, um, but it is very yeah. prevalent throughout all. Of but it's also a like huge thing in Japan. Yeah, like, cultural difference and all. Yeah, I, I did read this movie was criticized by like uh, t- tobacco foundations, though. So or anti anti tobacco <laughs> anti tobacco. Yeah. How are you so, going into a like nineteen something movie expecting right. there to be no tobacco? <laughs> well, and it, well, yeah, like, probably smoking in front of a sick person probably not the best. That's yeah, that's here. the worst part. <laughs> I mean, okay, I understand because I did have a moment where I was like, man, these people are smoking a lot of cigarettes. And then I was like, yeah, but it's like the early 1900s. So everybody was smoking all the time. Like, right. yeah. yeah. I mean, if you're looking at this from a tobacco prevention perspective, it's also like a character heroic like Jiro smoking, I think is yeah. different from maybe yeah. Baba smoking in Spirited Away. He's a villain. So I think like this is a little bit of a, a different story, but he is pretty constantly presented and Miyazaki smokes himself, not like super regularly, I think, but he does in documentaries I've seen. Yeah. Um, yeah, the romance. One thing about the romance, I like. I, I think it's beautifully presented. I'm a little sketch on when they meet when she is like 13, I think, or something pretty young. I think that's like a, a sketch in, introduction for the romance. Of course, nothing happens, and it's more just like. But they're clearly he's enamored with each other right away, and it's it's like eh, okay, but probably realistic to the time period. Um, I was gonna say, I think it's realistic, but I do like that. I guess like the majority of the romance takes place after she's grown yeah, up. We, we skip so. a long time until she, they're clearly adults, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's good. Uh, the the relationship of her being sick, and then there's the parts about their decision, which I was I was surprised how much it's portrayed negatively by the people around them, which it's like um, they're focusing on uh, living Nauko's last years to months or however long to the extent that they want to versus trying to have her receive treatment. Um, yeah, I th- I I think that's yeah. I don't like that. I guess every other character was just like she needs to be getting treatment. And I'm like, if she already knows she's dying, like yeah. let her let like, her do live what out. She wants. Yeah, and I don't so- like that. Like, I mean, I like that the sister pointed out that he's being selfish about it, but it, it was also her decision. You know, it yeah. wasn't just like monopolized by him. Exactly. She came to see him, right? Like he didn't tell her yeah. to come over. Yes, yes. She she clearly wants to um be be with him and then leaves before um he gets to really see and is and is presenting herself as healthier than she is and then leaves before he gets to see her at her worst before she dies. Um you know, clearly it does seem to be Naoko's decision, but Jiro is um on board. Um and I do, and I think it's good yeah. that the movie questions that decision with the yeah. character. I also take um, it back. The boss's wife has the other brain cell. So the sister and the wife have the two brain cells in the movie. Because she's the one who's like, no, let her go. Like, let her do what she wants. Yeah, like, let, like wait until she gets on the train. Like, <laughs> Yeah. She so. I, think, I think if the movie made clear that there she is definitely dying and there's definitely no cure, then I would be more on board watching with their decisions. <laughs> yeah. They're not really clear with that. Well, uh, I was going to say, I think maybe it just comes from, like, maybe my acceptance of it comes from the sense that I know, like, like 
I know what tuberculosis is. I know what it does to people. Like, so I'm like, okay, I get it. Like, she right. wants I think to- we know that. I'm like, do they know that? Like, do the characters? Like, it's. I think it's implied the sister who's studying medicine would know that she's definitely dying. Yeah, but she's the yeah. only one. But she's like, the only one. Do the rest of them, like, did she learn this in the sanatorium? Like, uh, I don't know. So, um, I'm sure but she, I feel like she did, but I think that's probably what's behind her decision to go li- be with the person she wants to be with at the end of her life. Yeah. I yeah. Think that's, yeah. That's, she sees the suffering around her and she's like, you know, I might as well. But like, yeah. then you, it's also implied that even Jiro knows because he says, like, every day is precious because we don't have a lot yes, of time. Yes. Yes. I think Which so. Which is yeah. why, like, they want to get married and, yeah. like, quickly. I, what, do we, what do we think of the I think the wedding was pretty beautiful. It was um, nice. I loved it. <laughs> I want to get married in a kimono, but also I really don't because they're very uncomfortable, but they're very pretty. Yeah. yeah I'd have the weeb wedding. I think yeah, so. Yeah. I, if, I, if I do get married, it's going to be very weeby. Naruto headbands. Naruto themed yes. wedding. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> You do the yes. Naruto run down the aisle. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, the wedding was it was gorgeous. Uh, Susan Napier, I don't have a quote, but she largely describes it as like a very fairy tale romance. Um, I is kind of I, very I, sad. I won't. Romance. I won't lie. Like I kind of teared up a little bit whenever, um, oh. whenever like she like they first open the door and you see her there, and I'm like, she's so beautiful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're a, you're a lucky man. <laughs> Yeah, man. A wife. Yeah, I think um, it's it's gorgeous. It's tragic. It's very affecting, I think. Uh, And I know we spent a lot of time criticizing kind of this overall moralist moral view of the movie. But this movie seems very laser focused on Jiro's life. Um, and what he's specifically going through with, and we see that manifested with his personal life with Naoko, and then we see it manifested with his role in building planes and doing what he wants to do in terms of building, building something beautiful. It's very laser focused on Jiro's life and his experiences. And I think that is very successful. That's like the strength of the movie is like, this mm-hmm. is all we, we see the journey of this person. Um, and the criticisms are like, but we don't see enough of the overall context. But I think the reason we don't is because Miyazaki is so laser focused on Jiro for better or for worse and yeah. uh yeah I, you know i think it does make for compelling storytelling it, with especially with nauka i think which is probably the most compelling parts of his personal journey mm-hmm. agreed um J- jiro uh we can talk more about them we talk about the characters but yeah jiro uh is voiced by in the japanese version hideki Yano, which is um Miyazaki's longtime friend and director of Neon Genesis Evangelion. Like, oh my fam- god, are you serious? You didn't know, you didn't know this? Uh, he's a no. famous anime director. Um, that's why you gotta watch the sub. Is for I knew I recognized that name. Oh my god. Uh, Ano worked with Miyazaki on Nausicaa before making his own studio, and they've been longtime friends since. And the number one reason I would recommend watching one of these two documentaries I mentioned, uh, 10 Years with Hayao Miyazaki or Kingdom of Dreams and Magic. And this is both feature the exact same scenes, but it's the most compelling documentary scenes of Miyazaki of uh, uh, of uh, t- Suzuki proposing to Miyazaki like, hey, what if we got your friend Ano to voice Jiro and Miyazaki just like is instantly giddy at the like he's like so happy at the and he's he just this is the happiest I've ever seen Miyazaki. How have I never rem- seen this? He, I, would, I would recommend seeing it. And he remains so giddy and then like they start recording and he's like, yeah, we're going with it. And then he starts recording lines and, and Miyazaki's just trolling him the entire time as he's recording lines for the movie. <laughs> 
Um, it's, it's really wonderful, but, uh, that's a very notable, I think, aspect of the, the, the most notable, like, voice casting choice in, in Ghibli films is you have, uh, another famous anime director, uh, voicing Jiro. And the, 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 the logic in the, in the documentary is, like, they're going for someone, like, pretty understated and normal, and, like, they, they weren't getting that out of the voice actors they brought in, so they're like, what if we go with a more normal person, um, like your <laughs> friends here? Um, I think it's I think it's really successful with Jiro's voice. He is not a normal person. I'm just saying he did Evangelion <laughs> or Evangelion, whatever. Oh more no, not an actor, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh uh, how, how does how does Joseph Gordon-Levitt do with her? Is he also pretty understated in his delivery? I think he did it really well. Like he yeah. got the. I mean, I don't want to say monotone because Jiro isn't like monotone, but he has like that calm demeanor. Very but also calm. When he's, yeah, yeah. When he's excited about the airplanes, I didn't expect Joseph to like. I know him on a first name basis now to for, to like do <laughs> it so well, but I didn't. I will say I didn't watch the whole thing dubbed. So April, tell me what you thought. I thought I think he did very like very well. I I think something that I I applaud voice actors is especially whenever like they're already sort of like a big time name, and you don't like outright recognize their voice for a character. Um, so I, I, I really enjoyed that. I didn't like outright recognize that it was Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Um, mm-hmm. same with like John Krasinski, like there was like, a, after I knew it was him and I could catch like moments of him, like of it being John versus like Hondro. So I really, I really enjoyed that. So I thought they both did very well. Um, I think it's of note that the young Jiro is voiced by Zach Callison. Yes. So. Yes. Steve, Steven, and Steven Universe. Yes. Yeah. We see him at the, the start of the movie, Young Jiro. I was just like, is that Steven? <laughs> yeah, who else replayed that like 30 times in the dub? Yeah. The first 10 minutes. Probably pretty different characters, Steven and Jiro. Oh, my oh God. absolutely. Yeah. But also, when you get to Mae Whitman, all you hear is Katara or Amity, so it's the same thing. Very different characters. I didn't know Amity grew up to be a doctor. Katara's he- <laughs> it works uh, yeah. for Katara because she's a healer, yeah. but yeah. I also works. find it very interesting that Emily Blunt did the voice of uh, Nauko. Yeah. <laughs> Not John's wife. <laughs> Not John's wife. <laughs> it was so good. I also her English accent, well, rather her American accent was very shocking. <laughs> I've never heard her speak in an American accent before. She does she does a very like she hides her like actual accent very well. So again, yeah. it's a, it's always nice and like refreshing whenever like I hear a a voice and I don't know. Yeah, I'm not like is that Emily? I'm like Emily. That's a really good I point. It's very so. cool when that happens. Even also, like I, with like Stanley Tucci like the whole cast yes. like I was like I, say, I would be we would be remiss if we didn't bring him up even though it was ridiculous <laughs> his Italian Tucci. accent <laughs> okay I want to I want to hear it for that yeah um I, Martin Short as the boss I think he's, that that's too. that's who I would probably imagine being that boss. <laughs> so I think that's that's pretty he did a really good job too but it was yeah. weird it's there's a lot of short. a lot of big names and minor characters too in in <laughs> I'm looking at the dub yeah um, including Ronan Farrow I think that's Ronan what I'm used to Ghibli with dub too. like Ghibli dubs they get a lot of big names for minor roles Probably because yeah. they don't have to pay them that much. <laughs> Darren, Chris, Elijah Wood, Mandy Patankin in minor roles. Interesting. Um, no, I think it's, I think, you know, actors are, are no Miyazaki is the best yeah. and want to be in his, at this point, and want to be in his, his dubs. Oh, yeah. um, and also they're like the highest profile dubs ever made. All the, all the D- Disney dubs after Spirited, Spirited Away and later, like these the highest profile dubs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, okay. Yeah. That's a uh, Jiro. Um, 
and uh, Nauko. I mean, yeah, I think we we talked about her through her romance with um, with Jiro, but also it like, is we... a little creepy, at least at the beginning. What is their age difference? Because there is one. That's all I know. I, I interpret her as like thirteen or something, and him as a college student is what. Yeah, I, I was gonna so, say I. I took it as like she was like thirteen, maybe fourteen, and he was like seventeen, maybe eighteen. So yeah, I don't I think he was a right. high school student, but he was definitely in college. Yeah, he was early, early, college. early college student. Yeah, so, I think that's right. And he, you know, not like anything romantic's going on, but he's like pretty. He's clearly enchanted with her, quoting something that uh, he likes. Um, so, yeah, they yeah. both speak French for some. Well, reason. then he, he's he's also I guess <laughs> that's like how you know they're smart. Yeah, <laughs> you speak. He's French also like respectful in a sense because he doesn't like immediately like pursue yeah. her. Like, it's yeah, not no, he's in, in fact, he in, in, in to his credit, I, I described it as a little creepy, but in to his, he he specifically does not pursue. He does not leave his name with anyone, so yeah. it's like he clearly right. is not doing this uh, for romantic purposes. Like in like he, I think it's clear he feels some way, but he is like specifically avoiding it because I guess it would be inappropriate or for whatever reason. Yeah, um, and it's okay yeah. that she. I mean, I don't know. Is it okay that she feels more because she's younger and like more susceptible? That feels like it's part of a bad element. But I think I think it would only be a part of a bad element if like throughout the year like if he had been right yeah that's true pursuing her but it, the fact that it comes from just like within herself is that's yeah. on her and like that, that one magical encounter yeah blah 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 yeah. and it was, it was just a crush he, he did he did seek out uh he went to the house at some yeah. point to try to find her so that's true you know yeah but that can be interpreted that. as just to be like are you okay i'm glad you're like right right yeah, yeah. Got through everything but it also um, could be interpreted as creepy so I, yeah. I was going to say, I I didn't interpret it as creepy. I just took it as yeah, him just either. being a nice guy and making sure they were okay. I, I will say it feels right for the time period. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I thought you meant him yeah. not being creepy. <laughs> no, the, 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 the age gap and the yeah. starting of romance. At but I don't know. Was that, that like, wasn't really a, no one cared about that back then. Because it was like, if you could find a guy who's rich, marry him. Right, I, right. I think, yeah, I mean, I think it wouldn't have been frowned upon if had it, the romance started when they first met. Um, yeah. P- potentially. I was afraid the dad was going to try and set them up after, like, they found out he was an engineer. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then the dad, the dad later mainly portrayed as being just worried because she's sick. Yeah. Um, Oh yeah, and no, wait, I forgot that one European guy who was at the lodge. He's the best character. Castor, that's who I was talking about. Oh, I didn't the, know he had a name. Castor, <laughs> the weird guy. Yeah, he, Castor. He, he's that's how you. He's anti-Nazi, and so then the J- Japanese secret police starts going after him, and then they go after uh, Jiro because he's associated with him. Yeah, he was the best character. <laughs> I like the way he ate his salad. <laughs> really strange how they focus he just has like a giant bowl of like weird like greens and then he just like scoops it onto his plate salad like i've never every time i watch a ghibli movie i get hungry and they always make me want a food i would never consider eating you want just a a salad that's only kale and nothing else in reality i don't but watching that scene (laughs) it makes me want to even even that can be made uh appealing by (laughs) by ghibli's animation and i would want to eat (laughs) right Yeah, that that's Castorb. Uh, yeah, he. I think he's 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 pretty funny. So he's weird, and uh, it's a nice. He's 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 clearly quirky, and then it's nice. He's like quirky in an anti-Nazi way. I didn't get to him out. in the dub, but I'd like to watch the dub to see how they do his I mean, Warner, or how they portray Warner, him. Warner Herzog as him. That's one of the top ones. Um, the uh, yeah, we we have Honjo. We talked about as his friend. Um, I I really like Kurokawa, his boss. Um, yeah. 
I, I, yeah. love, I just love the intro scene of him just ordering him around and he's like, hi, 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 like over and over, <laughs> like, yep, 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 okay, sure. Um, and then he's like, oh, he ultimately does care about him and invites him into his home where he hides from. And he cries at the wedding. I yeah. know. It's, a, it's a nice direction to take that character. That character, I think, is usually uh, more unsympathetic. Um, but then you also of... remember that he was the boss at Mitsubishi, so he's also complacent. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, he's he's the boss of the engineers, and then we see his boss is also a character. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, all, all of them. But uh, we have Kayo, his sister, I think is a um, good character. Best girl. She's a doctor. Uh, I love yeah, her. She did. I feel like she doesn't look very old when she's apparently a doctor at the end. Um, but I yeah, guess she's she, like in training, you learn. She's yeah, she's an intern or whatever. Yeah. yeah. How long was med school back then? <laughs> like, like probably years? not as long. Yeah, she'd have to be yeah. 30 right now, right? Yeah. yeah. So, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. She's probably like uh, early 20s. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and then Caproni. Honestly, I think Caproni is one of the most uh, significant characters is who you meet, he meets in the dream sequences. Yeah. Um, I do think the dream sequence is really magical and gorgeous. My favorite part is when there's the giant paper airplane um, in the second dream sequence, which I made the screen cap for this. Um, okay. And uh, and then in, in real life, uh, when, I think one of the most enchanting romance scenes is when he's trying to fly the paper airplane up to... Yes. Oh, that's yes. a great scene. The music in that scene too is really good. Uh, it's it's like obvi- it's like an obvious thing. It's like this movie's all about the creation of planes, a plane engineer, so he makes paper airplanes. But it's also like uh, it works. Like <laughs> yeah, it's like sure he's a paper airplanes. Okay, but it's it is it feels pretty resonant. He just likes planes in any yeah. shape yeah. or form. It's yeah, even... paper, wood, and metal, eventually metal. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. the progression we <laughs> kind of go through. Yeah. I was ready for him oh. to have like a oh no wait that's a ship in a bottle I was gonna say an airplane in a bottle because I'm crazy. <laughs> Are there like I mean people have airplane models I guess. We've had uh, yeah. ship planes in Miyazaki lore so it's in yeah line with that yeah it's a lot of that. Um, yeah. Any any other cons on the the Jiro and Naoko romance or either of those characters? No. <laughs> no. Okay. I would say I mean, can... it's like I mean. No, I I don't know how to phrase this without sounding silly, but like it's it, like the way that the drama was done, it's made me I think Michelle also said this in chat. It's like I've never cared about a hetero couple this hard in a while. Like it's been a while. And they just it makes it so sad, but also I mean it's just it's complicated because you don't like any of the decisions they make. You haven't cared that much since last movie, since Poppy. Oh, well, I care about uh, the kids more because they're babies. It's easy, yeah, right? Like adult, <laughs> yeah, I do. I do think with all these other Ghibli romances, they're all like children. It's they're naturally sympathetic, and here you have adults. And yeah, um, I'm glad you it, like bring that up that it's an adult movie because I keep like kind of forgetting about it, even though I don't. I don't really know why because most of his movies are about like adolescence. Yeah, I mean, the only again, the only film you can really compare this to in this regard would be Porco Rosso, which I do view as an adult movie, but I do think is more of like a fun movie that kids can enjoy. Um, I have to watch that movie. And yeah, um, mm. and you know, I'm honestly, you could apply some of the things we're talking, a lot of the things we're talking about in terms of the war criticisms to Porco Rosso, but like we just didn't talk about it, and it's not part of the uh, discourse for that movie. And I think just because of the completely different tone, um, the more um, fantasy fun nature of the movie i don't know but it, it is interesting to think about that because you could view porco in a similar way yeah um, i think i think porco is viewed more morally gray by at least by him he's more self-doubting i guess and he's uh he's viewed more complexly jero's presented very heroically and very fairy tale like i guess in terms of his journey um 
they feel like different characters too. Personally, I I think Porco comes across as a more complex, better character in the end, but Jiro certainly goes through a lot of experiences in this movie and we sympathize and empathize a lot with him, I think, throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think, I think the, yeah, the, the, the two plain movies, of course. Um, in terms of Jiro uh, and Naoko, I think the, the major other thing to talk about is the ending of the movie. Yeah. Um, which uh, we can briefly mention Joe Hisaishi's score for this movie, which I did not dive into as much as his other ones. However, I, the main thing I note is the uh, there's several tracks on the soundtrack labeled A Journey, um, and then parentheses something, which uh, all involve kind of this... Uh, I don't know. What the, I don't know what's the pla- the theme for planes, curiosity, uh, invention, but uh, it's kind of. And the, then I feel death. like the, the musical through line throughout the movie, and yeah, I guess uh, goes in that direction. Um, and well, at the, it kind of relates to the sky, if you want to pull it all together. Yeah. The theme of the sky, you could say that. Yeah, but I, I definitely, I definitely, when I think of this movie, movie's sound, I think of this one theme that prevails throughout, yeah. it, which is prominent on the soundtrack. Um, I love the end credits song, uh, which is uh, Hikoki Gumo um, by Yumi Matsutoya. Uh, it's from 1973, actually, and they finally use it in this movie. Um, I don't know if it's it's not like but she. I think she's done uh, tracks on a previous Ghibli film or two. I don't remember, but um, I think that's a, it's a really great one to close out the film. And at the end. Um, let me read this quote, last quote from Susan Napier on kind of the ending and how it changed and the themes of the ending of the movie. She says, Yet the movie does not end in tragedy, at least for its protagonist. In a coda set in the future after the war, Jiro sees Nako appear before him, still young and beautiful, her white parasol whipping gaily in the wind. In the movie's original ending, Nako... The movie's original ending had Naoko saying, Kite, come, but this was changed by Suzuki, who apparently, who apparently because come suggested Naoko is inviting Jiro to join her in the world of death, in the world of death. In the completed film audiences, she, see, she tells her husband, Ikite, live, echoing Ashitaka's Ikiro in Princess Mononoke. Uh, but in my view, the world Na- Naoko had asked Jiro to come to is not necessarily the world of the death, but in the, but the world of dreams, imagination, beauty, and hope. In other world, in other words, it is the animated universe that Miyazaki has conjured up over the past 40 years and one that his films will continue to invite us, uh, to for years to come. This is kind of our conclusion to the discussion, which I thought was, uh, pretty. Um, but yeah, it's interesting how originally she's saying, uh, come and she ends up saying live. Yeah, I'm glad um, they replaced yeah. that because I would have interpreted it as like coming to die okay. also. Yeah. I feel Are like you it's... ready to die with me? <laughs> <laughs> come I feel like it's the prevailing yeah. interpretation. But I like Napier's interpretation. That's not like probably what Miyazaki meant. Uh, oh, yeah, totally. You know? yeah. So, but, uh, we end up, we end up uh, yeah, with a similar message to Princess Mononoke. Okay, we discussed that a lot on that podcast about this Ikiro theme, um, which is uh, live even in the worst and hardest of times. You have to strive to live. And, uh, you know, we end this movie in a one of the worst times in human history um, right before that. But then that blog takes place right in the, the crux or right after the war. And, uh, you know, Jiro is, is uh, urged to live similarly to Ashitaka in that movie. Um, and uh, I, I do like how this this epilogue ending kind of does acknowledge the darkness of the period. We've talked a lot about how the movie sanitizes the war, sanitizes all these challenging aspects. I, I, I think it is very good that the ending of the movie does uh, at least uh, touch, on, touch on them. Um, 
Yeah, and and so she you know she she passes away Nauko in in the background. Uh, he like feels a wind when like in in his moment it's very tragic in his moment of greatest triumph when the zero has a successful test run. You know he is not celebrating because he senses um, that she she's died. And then we see her uh, at the end in this uh, kind of dream sequence, which I think is also a nice way to tie in the dream sequences he's been having with Caproni, which relate to his uh, plain invention side of things to his romance with Nalco and how that ends. Mm. It all comes together. <laughs> yeah, I think, and I think it does, it does feel uh, complete and good at the end of the movie. Like, I do think it's a very well-made movie, a very, uh, very narratively uh strong film especially compared to his previous two movies which uh miyazaki's previous two movies which we wouldn't describe as narratively strong at least as their core their strongest elements of uh, howells and ponyo i think uh this this, this certainly has a a, a a strong story at its at its core driving yeah. the film yeah um yeah any any comments uh on the ending or um any any scenes we even talked about? Oh, how about the uh, the mackerel bones? Is uh <laughs> is how we display uh, Jiro's uh, engineering curiosity through uh, his he eats, you eat mackerel uh, to look at the bones. Also, um, that yeah. is like my worst nightmare. Is to, <laughs> like anytime I find like a bone in a like fish that I'm eating, I'm yeah, instantly sucks. like I can't eat the rest of this fish because I will die. Yeah, like, <laughs> it's really it sucks. Yeah, Jiro loves it. He lo- he wants it. Well, he can he wants have to all choke of- and die. Yeah, he wants to choke and die. That's so terrible. <laughs> this is a different element. This was before he met his wife, Dylan. Oh, you don't know. Fair. He doesn't want to die yet. Yeah, uh, <laughs> he seems to still be fascinated with. And the implication is the design of the mackerel bones inspires him to make the zero at the end. I think it's a good. Uh, it's cute, but I'm like, okay, is that accurate I, at I all? Mean... It's pr- probably not. It, honestly, I mean, you have to keep in mind with movies like this is a movie about a science person made by art people. Um, so it's like, <laughs> so it's like, what? Well, how are we going to display the scientific curiosity in a uh, thematically resonant way? <laughs> I love that description. Yeah. Well, uh, that's the thing with all, all like, movies of of historical science people is they're made by artists, right? But sometimes uh, they do get, like, science people on board for, like, accuracy writing and stuff. And with this, it's like, I don't think they had that. Probably not, yeah. I would assume, I I bet the math calculations and stuff are they made sure sure that's accurate. Yeah, Yeah. at least to Um, some extent. But yeah, it's definitely a simplifying of his inspiration and curiosity. But also, I do think, like, engineering can be viewed as a very artistic profession and that ties into um the like uh, feelings about creating airplanes yeah cre- creating exactly. and uh yeah so i think the, miyazaki does as we mentioned tie in a lot to that with his own uh sees himself i, I think is, is a lot with what jiro's going through even if it's a more scientific oriented thing that jiro's doing more artistically oriented that he's doing mm. um yeah i think we I feel like we covered most of the big scenes here Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, I think we have everything here. Uh, Ali, any other aspects to touch on of Wind Rises or any final comments? I'm trying to think if we did miss anything. Uh, mm, no, I mean, uh, I think we pretty much covered it. I think uh, echoing basically the whole thing, it's a hard movie to watch, but it's very, very well done. I think it's you can appreciate it for what it is and still criticize it um i i don't know if i'd say it's my least favorite movie to watch just because i think like 
in terms of animation, I'm like I'm a visual person. I like just looking at pretty things, and it's just easy in that sense. But I don't know. It's not my favorite, not my least favorite, but I still think it's a good movie. Yeah, nice. Uh, April, final comments? Yeah, I, I agree with Allie that it, it's definitely, it's a good movie. Um, and you can definitely appreciate it for what it is. I mean, it, it does look beautiful. The music's, you know, very captivating. Mm-hmm. And so it has all of these, like, really great elements. But, I, like, I agree that I think because of the, like, the, the uneasiness that it get like, put gives me it makes it like hard to be like this is my favorite movie ever like everyone should watch it i mean i would definitely recommend this movie to other people but yeah i think i would probably like forewarn them and just be like hey just you know yeah. this movie's unsettling a little bit <laughs> lots of trigger warnings yeah but you'll but it's a great movie like it really is but yeah. again it's just not my favorite and i i think i think a lot of that comes from like the context of the story yeah, I will say that like in terms of Miyazaki or Ghibli in general, I think a lot of people hashtag sleep on like the non-fantasy movies. So yeah. this one is also one that I would like really push people to watch like up there with Poppy Hill and when not not when rises um Whisper of the Heart. Yeah, it's a good point that yeah. uh, there the aren't the most watched of films. A lot of the non-fantasy ones, you could tie that into this. Um, yeah, I, I think like we covered a lot of ways this, which this is an incredibly well-made, uh, very good film. Um, I think I'm probably going to come out of this because we, this concludes the Miyazaki portion of the rewatch. I'll probably come out of this as my least favorite Miyazaki film, but that being said, I think it's tremendous. So like, I don't think that there's any, he made, he made a single film, which is, uh, even good. I think this, all of his films are excellent, incredible. I think this is one of them should be noted as we are not the highest group on this movie. There are people that think of this as a masterpiece, this movie. Mm-hmm. I'll, hi- yeah. I'll highlight uh, critic David uh, Elric, who called this the greatest animated movie ever made. Okay, so, that's a stretch, I would think. But. <laughs> look, look, look uh, I, I'm, I think probably there's not people really claiming that for Ponyo or... The uh, greatest animated movie ever made is Shrek 2, and I will stand okay, by that. Come on, get, come on, come on. Uh, but all, yeah, ignoring the Shrek movies, the masterpiece. No, movie, don't but, ignore uh, the Shrek no, movies. <laughs> the, the, no, I, I think like you won't hear this about a lot of his other movies outside of That's true, the, yeah. the, the Spirited Aways and the Mononoke's. But th- this is a movie that is certainly revered by some people. I do want to acknowledge that that opinion for sure. And I think like I think there's you could like, justified like absolutely. It, yeah. If if what if what you like is what this movie is going for, because it's going for a lot of distinct things from other Miyazaki movies, I can clearly see why you would like this the most. If not, uh, and in terms of this being the best, there's a ton of great stuff here. So I I don't think it's like like personally I don't agree, but I think it's uh, I think you can easily justify it's, it. It's not a far fetched idea. Yeah. Yeah. But like I, lo- for... I like fantasy stuff, so. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm fair. Just like, and that of is all Miyazaki's time, specialty. There is, I'm just, what is the greatest? An- no, Spider Verse well, is it, the greatest animated movie of all time. No, uh, as as I as I said in this series, I think Spirited Away is the greatest uh, animated movie ever <laughs> so made. So good. So so uh, it's it's you know this is another Miyazaki film. Um, yeah. So for, look, I like for, for me, like I have like I think there's a tier of movie which I think is like a step behind all of other, Miyazaki's other movies, which include these last three ones and probably Cagliostro. 
Maestro as kind of being just a step behind his other films. But I, I don't view it as a thing where these are like so much worse than the others. I think you could easily just say any of them are as good as all of his others slash even the best ones. I think all of he's just has so many different incredible movies of of uh, doing a lot of different things, which Wind Rises is most distinctive among them. And I uh, certainly I think we've acknowledged how notable and interesting its uh, distinctiveness is and its uh, kind of well-made nature. Um, yeah, so I think let us know your thoughts on Wind Rises. Find all ways to contact us at OverlyAnimated.com. Um, it's... Uh, well, we are going to continue. Last Miyazaki movie we'll be covering on the series, but not the last Ghibli movie. So we have two more to go, including uh, Takahata's final film, which I am extremely excited to talk about uh, next time um, and rewatch that as uh, we'll, we'll see if we compare it to this movie, maybe an epic like this movie, a personal epic. It's kind of what I remember. So very <laughs> excited to get into that movie. Um yeah, fi- make sure you uh, you can yeah, again overlyanimated.com to find everything about us and uh, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash overlyanimated. Thanks to all of our current patrons, especially our patron of the podcast, Michael. And thanks to our straight patron executive producers, Ryan, Steve, Alex, Beatrice, you, Michael, Needle, and Phonician. So we will see you next time for Tale of Princess Kaguya. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.